0: We are down to our last two weeks in this series on 2 Corinthians, and we're just going to jump right in at this point, because you know all the backstory. We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, or chapter 13, verses 1 through 10. Let me read it for us, and we'll jump into this text. This is the third time that I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. He was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Christ Jesus is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. We are glad when we speak, when, when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of authority that the Lord has given me for the building up the church and not for the tearing down. A couple weeks ago, um, I was playing a show up the road and ended up in this conversation uh, with a girl who had come to check out some of the bands. And over the course of this conversation, it came up that I was a pastor. And I'm just going to tell you, I'm not ashamed of my job. I like my job. I love my job even. I try really hard not to let people know I'm a pastor the first few times I meet them. And I don't like go out of my way to do really bad things to make them think that I'm not a pastor. Um, But I just, I, I don't lead with that in conversation because people get really weird once you mention that. Like they start apologizing after every curse word. They start apologizing for things that I wasn't even there to see. Like, they think that somehow, like, they can confess their sins to me, like I'm some sort of a priest from a Catholic church. Uh, They start immediately, once they find out I'm a pastor, they start explaining why they don't go to church. And I'm like, dude, I don't, I didn't ask. (laughs) I mean, like, I care. I'm not saying I don't care. I genuinely do. But, like, holy cow, you just asked what I did for a living. (laughs) And here comes confessional. And the conversation immediately goes from, like, relatively casual. to to really heavy as soon as that comes out. And that was sort of what happened in this conversation. Um, She asked what I did, and I I mentioned that uh, I worked at a church trying to be, like, not dishonest, but vague. And she said, oh, what do you do? And I said, I'm a pastor. (laughs) And she immediately launched into the the heavy stuff and and said, well, you know, I I grew up in church. I used to go to church. I, I don't really go to church anymore, which is exactly what happens all the time when I mentioned my job. And I said, okay. um, And any reason why that is? Because genuinely, not just because I'm a pastor, but I'm interested in hearing uh, from people, especially that are kind of our age, what it is that has drawn them away from the church, what the challenges that they run into in believing the gospel are. And she said, yeah, um, I'm very spiritual. You should know that. I'm very spiritual. I'm just not religious. And I said, you are a statistic, and you don't even know it. (laughs) Um but yeah, there's just some things in the Bible that I don't really agree with. And I said, that's fair enough. There's some tough stuff in the Bible. Can I press you a little further and just ask you what what is it in the Bible that you don't agree with? And she said, well, you know, I really believe that God is love. And I said, that's in the Bible. Um, okay. And I just don't think that a loving God would ever judge anybody or tell anybody that their choices are wrong. I said, uh, Okay. And I don't think a loving God would ever send anybody to hell because that's, that's judgmental and that's not loving. And maybe, maybe you're in this room right now and you're a Christian and you hear that critique and you think, that just sounds silly. Like, that, that's, that's dumb. And, and the, the fact of the matter is that, that when you hear something like that, I, I want to challenge you if you're a Christian in this room, don't dismiss it so easily. Don't write off the concerns of a non-believer so quickly. Because the fact of the matter is that when I have conversations with people who aren't Christians, the questions that are hard for me to answer, they're not the complicated ones. They're not the ones like, how do you explain the Trinity? Or how do you explain divine sovereignty and human freedom? And those are not the questions I have problems with. I write papers on that. That's my job as a grad student. It's these seemingly small things that feel unimportant, that feel almost below responding to, that are the hardest things to answer. They're challenging. You may not think they're challenging until somebody's talking to you about it. Maybe there's some people in this room and you're not a Christian, or you got dragged here by a friend, or you've dragged yourself here because you would say, hey, I'm I'm spiritual but not religious, but might be religious, I'm open, open to being convinced. And that is your question, or it's one of your questions. How can a loving God be judgmental? Or maybe you are a Christian, and that's one of your questions. I don't understand how the love of God can coincide with judgment. I would venture to say the passage that we're in tonight did not help your questions, because it certainly sounds an awful lot like Paul is about to get real judgmental. He is. He is. But I think that, that rather than, than sort of deepening these questions, the way that Paul approaches the Corinthians as he, he warns them, I'm coming to you a third time now, and, and this third visit, he's coming in judgment. He's coming to, uh, pass, to pass judgment on the Corinthians. The, the way that he sort of lays this out, it actually might help us think a bit better about the judgment of God and, and why it's not actually uh, a horrific thing, but it might even be a good thing in some ways. It might even actually be what we need to really make sense of the world. So Paul starts this warning. He says, I am coming to you for a third time. The first time he visited the Corinthians probably was when he planted the church. The second time would have been when the Corinthian church rejected him. The third time is the one that is impending. And he lays sort of these ground rules for his visit. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now this is the way our law courts work. Maybe not two or three witnesses, but generally speaking, if the legal system is working like it should, even though it often doesn't, you can't just accuse people of things without any proof, at least when justice is actually being just. You can't just claim that somebody did something that nobody saw and you have no evidence of and somehow see them prosecuted for it. At least you ought not to be able to do that. But this is also Jewish law that Paul's quoting. The book of Deuteronomy lays this out. If you're going to charge someone with a crime, you need at least two witnesses... Possibly three. And so what Paul says is is we're about to throw down. Like We're we're about to have a serious conversation and nobody is going to be able to finger point here and accuse any other person of something that you don't have evidence for. The judgment that is coming to you is not going to be the sort of thing that's handed out indiscriminately, that's given to the will of the masses and somebody can say that Timmy did this and we're just going to all get in a circle and punch Timmy in the face as hard as we can. Like It's not going to work like that. We need witnesses. You can't accuse him for anything that you don't have proof of. I won't accuse you of anything you don't have proof for. This is how this judgment works. It's not a game of finger-pointing. You know, um, one, of the, one of the most well-known books in American literature is one that I think most people in this room have either read or pretended like they read via Wikipedia and or Sparknotes to kill a mockingbird. Um, And if you just didn't even pretend to read it, I know it's required reading in most English classes. It basically follows the story of uh, this young girl living in a southern town that's sort of steeped in Jim Crow South racism, and her dad is a lawyer, and he's charged with defending this black man in the town who's accused of assaulting a woman in the city. And it sort of weaves in and out her childhood, her experiences with people, and this case that is going on. And it becomes abundantly clear as you either actually read To Kill a Mockingbird or read the Wikipedia article on To Kill a Mockingbird that the man that is being defended who has been accused of these crimes is is totally innocent. He hasn't actually done what he's been accused of. He is actually the, the victim in the sense that he is suffering the consequences of the prejudices and the racism that exists in the town. But there's this interesting thing that happens when you read it. I mean, at least if you have like any soul at all when you read it, there's this sort of outrage that starts to stir in you. There's this frustration that starts to happen. Like to kill a mockingbird makes me mad, even in the spark notes, which is what I read in high school. (laughs) Because what's happening there is wrong and, and there's this anger, but the anger doesn't turn into, man, I wish that nobody would judge anybody in this town. There, there's maybe some of that, man, I wish racism wasn't a thing in this town. but But the anger doesn't work itself out as, man, I just wish people weren't judgmental. It's I wish people would judge rightly. It's I, I wish that justice would be carried out. It's not, I wish that there was no judgment, but I wish that the judgment was just and that it was fair. And this sort of works itself out in our hearts. And even though we may say you know, being judgmental is bad, the fact is that you can watch To Kill a Mockingbird and feel this cry for justice in your heart. I said watch it. You could also read it like the actual book. But you feel this cry for justice. It's not a cry for a lack of judgment. It's a cry for a fair, righteous judgment. We want justice. Justice comes with judgment. But judgment must be displayed rightly. Paul is abundantly clear with the Corinthians here about how this sort of judgment that's about to take place is going to happen. They, they are asked to not be flippant, to not be baseless in the way that they accuse one another. And, and this sort of gives us a picture of what God's judgment is like. It's not flippant. It's not baseless. It's careful. It's measured. Nobody gets off for what they've done. Nobody's accused of what they have not done. It's the fairness that you long for when you hear stories of injustice. It's the answer to that cry in the human spirit, not for a lack of judgment, but for justice and just judgment and righteousness. He goes on, he says in verse 2, I warned those who sinned before and all the others. I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. So Paul kind of lays this out and he lets the Corinthians know, hey, I warned you of what was coming. Count this letter as another warning. You have been warned that, that what's going on here in this community is going to produce and, and sort of sow and reap a harvest of judgment. Now, what all is going on in Corinth is complicated. There's all sorts of things happening. There's the rejection of Paul. They've thrown off sound teaching. They've embraced false teachers. There's all sorts of sexual sin that's running rampant. There's promiscuity. There's probably incest. Uh, Actually, in 1 Corinthians, Paul mentions a man who's sleeping with his father's wife, which could either be his mother-in-law or his actual mom. And the Corinthians are proud of it because they think it's a sign of their uh, sexual progressive ethic. And he says, what are you doing? This is going to end poorly. This is going to bring judgment. But he lays it out again and again and again. And, And here's what's important. And it sort of gets at the heart of what God's judgment looks like. It might undercut some of our concerns about judgment. Because when we talk about judgment, I don't know that we totally hate the idea of judgment, but we don't want to be judged on standards that we're unaware of. We don't want to be judged on standards that are hidden to us and and, and not made known to us. So some of us are college students, some of us um, are teachers, some of us, or all of us rather, have been to school in some capacity. We've all taken tests. As much as we don't like tests, we recognize there's some legitimacy to it. But what's the consistent question from elementary school onward? Will this be on the test? And hell hath no fury like a student who has been told this will not be on the test, and then it's on the test. Like That's the sort of thing that even when you're in college, you probably ask your parents to write your teacher about, which is super stupid. Don't do that. But it's not the test itself. It's the fact that we're being graded on something that we're totally unaware of. We're being graded on a standard that hasn't been made clear to us. That cannot be said of the Corinthians. They know what they ought to do. Paul says, I've warned you again and again and again. The problem is not that they don't know. It's that they think Paul's wrong. And that probably says something to our modern age. Because the fact is that for many of us, sort of the the call of Scripture in the life of the Christian is it's not something that we're ignorant of. We just don't like it. We don't agree with it. It doesn't sit well with us. And I wonder if, if my friend at the show that I was talking to when she said that she didn't see God as being judgmental, what she really actually meant was, I can't think of a God that would ever disagree with me on anything that I think is important. And if he would, then he's wrong. And there's this subtle arrogance that sort of works itself into these statements. I I can't help but notice when we say things like, God would never judge someone for that, the things that we're talking about are just whatever is currently culturally acceptable to be passionate and excited about. And it becomes when we talk about God this way, we talk about a God that would never disagree with us. And that's not a God at all. That is a mirror reflection of yourself that you've given a different name. That's so often what happens here. But Paul, in his approach to the Corinthians, he gives us this picture of God's judgment, his dealing with us. He calls us to this righteous life throughout the scriptures, throughout the New Testament. And man, if, if the Bible is to believe, be believed about what it says about God, that he's love, it's also to be believed in what it says about him actually being holy. And if it's if it's to be believed about what it says about him being holy, it's to be believed about what it says about us maybe not being quite so holy. And then we should maybe defer to his judgment on some things that we can't conceive of him disagreeing with us on. The fact is that if God is who He says He is and we are what He says that we are, then we might actually be wrong and it's not God who needs to change, it's us. But Paul goes on as he warns the Corinthians of his coming judgment. He points them to Christ and he says, You seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. He's not weak in dealing with you, but powerful among you. He was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. We also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Now, if you're new to the church thing, maybe you're just coming back for the first time in a long time, maybe this is your first time ever, you've never been before, this is super weird to you, and Christians are freaking you the heck out right now. You'll notice, or maybe you've begun to notice, the fact that everything we talk about somehow finds its way back to Jesus. it either has its roots in him or it finds sort of its best example and its greatest fulfillment in him. You know we talk about wisdom and and Jesus is is the embodiment of wisdom. He's the true wise man. We talk about Kingship and Jesus is the only good king, the only wise king. We talk about anger. Jesus is the only one who's ever fully displayed the righteousness of God and righteous anger perfectly. We talk about love. He's the only one who has ever embodied the love of God in a perfect way. And here, Paul wants to talk about judgment, and he says, if you want to understand power, weakness, the judgment of God, I need you to go back to Jesus. I need you to look at this man the Son of God crucified in weakness, raised in power. Um, there's a picture that will be on the screen behind me. I actually have a very cheap Amazon.com copy of it. It may not appear this. Yeah, I have a cheap Amazon.com copy of it hanging above my desk in my office. And it's a painting by a German painter uh, named Grunwald, which sounds a lot like a character from Harry Potter, but I think he got his name first. Um, and it's, it's famous. It's, it's really, really well known as being this altarpiece. It would sit over the communion altar in a Roman Catholic church over in Germany. Um, and it's famous really for its depiction of Jesus. The, the depictions of things around the cross are, are pretty par for the course. You see um, John with Jesus' mother, uh, you see the other Mary. Uh, as opposed to Jesus' mother, Mary. At the foot of the cross, you see this sort of lamb that's kind of iconic of Jesus being the lamb of God. You see this guy who I don't know who he is with a book pointing at Jesus. I should have looked that up before I started talking about it. But why this is famous is not the thing surrounding the cross, but the man on the cross, because it has this haunting, horrific element to it. It's hard to tell from a computer screen, but as you look at his hands, his fingers are bent in these inhuman directions. As you look at his feet, they're bent in on each other. It is a picture that is painful to look at. Now, obviously, there's pain in the form of Christ because he's hanging on a cross. That's not fun. doesn't feel good. Nobody signs up for it. And yet, what we as Christians have said for 2,000 years, is that the pain that Jesus experiences on the cross, the, the anguish that he endures, it's not exclusively or even mostly physical. But that on the cross, Jesus is bearing the very judgment of God for us that the anguish on his face in paintings like this and depictions of the crucifixion, it's not just about the nails in his hands. It's about the weight of human sin being punished in Christ. And so I'm, I'm sitting at my desk today, kind of banging my head against this text and kind of looking up at the painting and then looking back at the text and then looking back up and looking back down, and it sort of dawned on me here that that is. Paul points them to Christ crucified in weakness raised in power as he talks about judgment it makes absolutely perfect sense because Jesus of anybody else has the right to judge he has the right to judge the world because he on the cross has been judged for the world he can judge first because he's God but second because he has borne judgment We have this sense in in our society that we don't give power to people who don't understand the weight of what they're doing. So LAPD doesn't give tasers to cops who won't allow themselves to be tased. Like if you're going to hold this taser and shoot it at somebody, you need to know what it feels like. Jesus is God. He can judge who He wants. And yet, He has also borne our judgment. He who has been judged for the world has the right to judge the world. And so Paul points them to Christ. But he goes on in verse 5, and he says this, Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test faith, test yourself. Or Do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? The whole letter of 2 Corinthians has been the Corinthians judging Paul. You're not interesting enough, you don't do cool enough miracles, you're not a great speaker. They've been judging him by unfair standards, but they've been judging him nonetheless. And here, Paul sort of turns things on its head and he says, for all of the effort you've spent judging me, maybe you should examine yourself. Maybe you should turn that sort of judgment in on yourself. Test yourself. Examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. There's a, there's a strange thing that happens in people that we really see our flaws most clearly when they're expressed in another person. That's probably why marriage is so sanctifying and also so difficult. But we don't see how bad our bad really is until it's done to us rather than by us. And so Paul tells the Corinthians, examine yourselves. You've been examining me. You've been passing judgment on me. Now turn and look inward. That's probably instructive for you and I. You know, Before we have the sort of difficult conversations that Paul's getting ready to have with the Corinthians, before you swing the hammer on another Christian in this room or in your church or in your life, before you lay a smacky down, maybe you should take a second and decide whether your criticisms of them might not also be true of you. Um... Maybe you you might consider the fact that all of your frustrations with them are things you've done to other people at some point, and you're only seeing them now because you're seeing them done to you rather than by you. Paul says, examine yourself. There is this grace in, in accountability and in the sort of judgment that Paul's about to enact on this church that it that every time we come to a brother or sister and say, hey, I think you're in sin here. You need to turn from it. Hey, you've really wounded me. I feel like you've sinned against me. Can can we talk this through? It affords you the opportunity not just to criticize another person, but to examine yourself. Accountability is also an act of repentance. But notice all of the weight of this hammer that Paul is about to swing. He explains what it's for in verse 9. He says, your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of authority that the Lord has given me for the building up of the church and not the tearing down. You know, at the end of this passage of judgment that's, that's difficult and hard to work through because it, it so runs against our, our way of thinking because judgment could never be a positive thing in our modern mind, Paul explains, "Hey, the, the whole purpose of this is not to crush you. The whole purpose of this is not to tear you down. The whole purpose of this is to build you up. The, the whole purpose of me talking with you about this, holding you accountable to this, calling you to repent of this, disciplining you in the midst of this, my my aim here is not to extinguish you, it's to restore you. My aim here is not to tear you down, but to raise you up. Now that runs countercultural to the modern mind to an unbelievable degree. Because if you wanted to build someone up, why wouldn't you ever just tell them good things about themselves? And yet I can I can tell you this. I mean, there are, there are people in this room and absolutely in this church who have come to me in a gracious act of judgment and said, Travis, you're an idiot. You hurt me or you've done something stupid and you need to repent. And that resulted in me maybe eating my feelings one night and being low, but it, it was an act of mercy Ultimately. It was an act of grace to tear me down from something that I had built that was stupid and idolatrous and wicked so that by the Spirit I could build again into something good. You know, The least loving thing that God could do was ignore evil and fail to name it. The most loving thing that God could do is to come against it and judge it and tear it down and in His mercy by His Spirit build it up new again. And so Paul says he's coming now in judgment to the Corinthians. But it's not their destruction he aims for, but their restoration. I pray that would be your heart as well this week, and that you would examine yourselves. You have an opportunity to do that now as we come to the Lord's table. We take communion here every week as a ministry. Um, we take it seriously, and that's not to say that, that other people don't. Um, but there is a, there's a weight here to what's going on. Uh, there's a weight to this moment of you and I coming to bread and grape juice or wine. Um, and, and there's a weight to it because I really do believe that this is not just a memorial meal. This is not just a way to think back fondly on, oh, isn't Jesus wonderful? Uh, but we call this the Lord's table because I believe Jesus meets us here. That this is an opportunity to encounter Christ in bread and wine. But Paul says, examine yourselves before you come to the Lord's Supper.